Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today with two perspectives on a common topic, a look inside Israeli society to help understand why it's in a near-constant state of war and repression. We'll hear from Joel Shalit and Orly Noy, two journalists with great expertise in the topic. Before that, a few words in the frequently heard complaint that unemployment insurance benefits, UI for short, are so big that workers are choosing them over finding jobs. There's never been much evidence for this proposition, which has been circulating for a year, aside from whining employers and the politicians and pundits who work for them. In fact, most studies of the matter find UI benefits have little effect on job search or acceptance. The latest example of this is a paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco by two of the bank's staff economists, Nicholas Petrosky-Nadeau and Robert Valletta. It's based on the Census Bureau's current population survey, the source of the monthly unemployment statistics. The authors compare that data with UI records and find little effect from last year's $600 supplemental benefits, and even less from this year's $300 supplement. Here's how they put their finding about the effect of the $300 supplement. In recent months, about 7 out of every 28 unemployed people would receive job offers that they would normally accept, but the extra UI benefits inspire one of those 7 to decline the offer. The other 6 still accept. In a word, the authors describe this effect as small which it is. It's less than 4% of those who receive job offers in a given month. This makes sense. Unemployed workers drawing benefits know the benefits are time-limited, whereas a job, which in the majority of cases would pay well above even last year's $600 augmented UI checks, and even more so now that the supplemental benefits are half as large, they know that a job can go on for years. Exceptions can be made for workers with less than a high school education, for whom wages are low and job duration quite short. Last year's enhanced unemployment benefits were a massive help to millions of jobless and frightened workers. This year's less enhanced benefits are still some help. And this paper from the San Francisco Fed shows that the benefits have little effect impeding re-employment. It would be cruel to take away those benefits to make the lives of some low-wage employers easier. And if such employers can't pay a decent wage, why should they exist? And now on to some interviews. In recent years, Israel has broadened its international support base beyond the U.S. This expanded support group now includes several European countries, mostly those with ethno-nationalist governments. These include Viktor Orban's Hungary and Sebastian Kurz's Austria. The other day, Hugh Lovett, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, told the Financial Times that the ethno-nationalist regimes see certain common ideological affinities, not anything to do with the Palestinian issue, but their world vision. It's chilling to read that, since the world vision is xenophobic and verges on neo-fascism. As Lovett put it, EU members who push for a more active approach in support of Palestinian rights, such as Ireland, Sweden, and Luxembourg, face substantial pushback from Israel's new allies. As we'll hear, something similar is happening in Germany today as well. In both these interviews, we discuss a recent report by Human Rights Watch, which described Israeli brutality towards Palestinians as, quote, crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. No elite organization has used language like this before and is both a sign of changing attitudes and a catalyst for more. My first guest has been on Behind the News many times, the Berlin-based journalist Joel Shalit, who spent many of his formative years in Israel and the U.S. He's now, among other things, the founding editor of The Battleground, thebattleground.eu, a website featuring news and analysis meant to combat racism and extremism and to defend democracy. Joel's written extensively on Israeli politics and society, including Israel versus Utopia, published by Akashic Books in 2009. Joel Shalit. First question, why now? Why this explosion of um, aggressive violence coming out of Israel? It's two-pronged. There's the violence from the state, and then there's the violence of Palestinians, both in Gaza, in the occupied territories, and also in Israel proper. What we're looking at is a violent eruption that could only have come from 12 years of Netanyahu's rule. Netanyahu has turned Israel upside down in so many ways that, of course, it would be ethnic violence that would come first as his rule has been put into crisis by the legal conundrums that he's currently facing with the Israeli Supreme Court. 
and the fact that he is very close to losing his job. So how much of this is an electoral ploy on his part? If you listen to somebody like Yair Lapid, who was tasked with forming a government after Netanyahu failed to following the most recent elections, Lapid is very directly suggesting to Israeli media that the Gaza flare-up is something that only could have happened now as a consequence of Netanyahu's real politics. But this is also um, tied to decades of occupation, displacement, routine brutality all the time, extraordinary episodes of brutality on every few years. So what is the relation of the current events to that long history? Without any doubt, Israel's history since independence and since the beginning of the occupation in 1967 is coming home to roost. Everything that's negative about Israel's treatment of the Palestinians has exploded as a consequence of the last 12 years of Netanyahu's policies in particular. It, it would have come at some point, but the combination of Netanyahu's decision, for example, to not take responsibility for administering COVID vaccinations in the occupied territories, the nation-state law, his promotion of far-right Jewish parties and far-right Jewish colonization of Jerusalem internally. All of this just happened to explode at once and come to a head as we approached Nakba Day, the, the Palestinian commemoration of the beginning of their exile in 1948 and the beginning of the refugee crisis, and uh, also um, at the end of Ramadan. Everything that happened in Sheikh Jarrah in the last few weeks drove that, particularly the incitement by Israeli far-right Kahanists like Itamar Ben-Gvir setting up office in the neighborhood. It all conspired to light a fuse just at the time that Netanyahu probably needed it the most. A war was the perfect thing to distract the polity from crisis of his prime ministership and the fact that we were going to get a change of government in Israel for the first time in 12 years. But of course, this stuff seems to be rather popular in Israel, right? I saw these man-in-the-street interviews uh, or person-in-the-street interviews in which just regular seeming Israelis expressed the most appalling opinions about uh, Arabs and Palestinians specifically. Um, uh, yeah, how, how pervasive are these attitudes? Yeah. Oh, that's real. That's real. The country has drifted right since the Al-Aqsa Intifada. The conflict really helped clarify right and left in the country, particularly the decline of left-wing political parties or center-left political parties like labor, and the whole country culturally and politically became a settlement in the years that followed. The anti-Arab attitudes that were common to the extreme right became the lingua franca, the political franca, if you want, of the country during this period. We haven't had any political leadership from the left that could make a convincing case for a proper two-state solution or a one-state solution, if you're on the far left, or multiculturalism and tolerance in an Israeli political context inside the Green Line. There's been absolutely no dominant political force that argued anything other than what the far right has argued politically in Israel, you know, since the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. It's terrible. This is our reality. We don't have a left in Israel. We don't even have a center left in Israel that can articulate an alternative ideological line to that of the far right. Yeah, I was about to say, it seems like the political spectrum in Israel uh, extends from right to far right to very far right. What happened to even something like a center left, the, the old traditional labor party? The center-left was eaten up by a number of problems over the years. The transition to neoliberalism in the country helped exacerbate that starting in the late 1980s, early 1990s, particularly following the economic reforms that Netanyahu uh, introduced you know, uh, when he was finance minister under Ariel Sharon. The Histadrut, the, the authority of the Histadrut uh, and labor politics in general completely disappeared. <laughs> And instead, Israel's mad rush to the free market also brought with it uh, a reinforced right-wing and religious and ethnic politics that hadn't been there before. It seems like most secular Israelis don't like the religious forces very much or the hyper-religious forces very much, but nonetheless, they have an outsized influence on politics. How does that happen? The secular Israelis still have a lot of cultural prejudice towards non-Jews. That is, a con that is reinforced by the news media and the government. 
just because you're secular, just because you may be affluent and work in high tech, doesn't mean that you still don't agree with or believe in the things that you're told in Israel by right-wing news media and by the state about the threat of Palestinians and of Islam. Centrism and secularism have been sort of emptied of their oppositional content in Israel during this period. And that's why, should Yair Lapid become prime minister, it's not necessarily going to make a big difference. It just means that a more tolerable and less reactionary version of Israel will be in power, but that the, the fundamental cultural politics will be the same. Well, now we've had, what, four elections um, in recent years, and yet Netanyahu has had repeated troubles putting together a serious government. What, what is inhibiting that? Why is this you know, constant electoral indecisiveness uh, then followed by inability to form a regime? Netanyahu is a very problematic personality, and he's really disliked, including within the greater Israeli right. But he's managed to dominate things for a dozen years, right? Yeah. He, he held on as long as he could, and there are a lot of competitors to the throne right now who feel that he is doing a disservice to their own particular partisan political interests, and they just want a piece of the pie. Israel is very also fragmented politically in its, uh, in its parliamentary uh, politics. There's multiple special interest parties that are continually proliferating with each election. A lot of it stems from the fact that there are a lot of intense personal rivalries between Israeli politicians within all their respective political camps. But the instability, the fragmentation and the instability that this creates reminds me a lot of Italy. It's one of the reasons why Netanyahu right now is proposing in order to stay in power that he be directly elected by the electorate, not dependent on a parliamentary majority um, in order to achieve power. That would be like a presidential system, then. That's exactly what, what he would like to see happen right now. And he has some support for that. He was, if I remember it correctly, and I stand to be corrected, he was elected once under that uh, arrangement. Um, but the, the direct election... Uh, uh, law was uh, shell following that. Just a, a moment of, to uh, be stunned by the fact that you could change um, the arrangement uh, just by a change of laws and not the, the ridiculous constitutional maneuvers you'd have to go through in the U.S. One of Israel's big weaknesses as a, as a country is it has no constitution. It has what, what the British call basic laws, you know, the system of which is largely inherited from the British occupation. Until Israel is able to, if it is ever able to, create a proper constitution that the political echelon can refer to, this kind of flexibility inside Israeli politics will prevail. And it's a perfect recipe for the kind of totalitarianism or authoritarianism that people like Netanyahu are accused of, of promoting. Israel, in, in many respects, is seen by Netanyahu's eternal critics as being on the precipice of going from uh, an illiberal democracy in the mold of Viktor Orban's Hungary to a, a totalitarian regime. If he does make that transition, this will be really fascinating. It's not out of the question. What's been amazing uh, in recent days to see the word apartheid emerge from the extreme margins of the left uh, into uh, more mainstream discourse in the United States. I mean, you had AOC just the other day uh, describing Israel as an apartheid state, which is, I couldn't imagine, you know, a member of the House of Representatives even a year ago saying something like that. How's this playing in Israel? Are they noticing what's happening within the Democratic Party? And it's not just, there's an article in today's New York Times, it's not just the AOC wing of the party, even some more mainstream Democrats are um, losing some of their fervor uh, for supporting Israel uh, with a blank check. Um, how's this being received in Israel? The HRW report has had enormous political influence. It, you know, it's hard to imagine the American uh, debate taking place without it. And the fact that it, the HRW report was released just before this most recent Gaza war started, the two only served to work together to, I think, help cultivate a new consensus in the United States that Israel is an apartheid state. The Israelis pay special attention, whether you're on the right or the left, you read American news media in Israel like it was your own. You know, if you have English competency, which most Israeli news consumers do to one degree or another, you follow American news. And amongst progressives, there's a sigh of relief that Americans are recognizing that something is extremely wrong with Israeli politics and with uh the special status accorded to Jewish Israelis in Israel's political hierarchy. 
on the far right, represented by the prime minister in his more extremist base, particularly the Anglo-American constituency, which is towards Netanyahu's authority in Israel, there is a sense that the uh, recognition of apartheid is, it represents a national emergency that needs to be stamped out. And so, therefore, additional measures need to be taken to, for example, censor social media and convince international news organizations that the charge of apartheid is an anti-Semitic slur. I'm speaking with the journalist Joel Shalit. Years ago, when I was interviewing on this show, it must be 15 years ago, you said that uh, Israel needs that external threat of war as a unifying force. Otherwise, the country would fall apart. That seems probably more true than it did 15 years ago. What are the, the, the lines of Fisher? How would Israel fall apart without these external threats um, offering some sort of external unity? Israel's political echelon has sort of lost the plot about what it means to run a properly functioning country whose structure and politics are not contingent on crisis and not contingent on racism and war. I think the idea that Israel could ever be run like a Scandinavian democracy is something so profoundly alien to Israeli politicians that if it were to eventually happen, they would think it was some sort of Arab plot. There is no status quo there's no aspiring status quo that is peaceful in Israeli politics. There is only emergency. And the fact that we are a country who has often been joked is a an army with a state conspires to that kind of thinking. If we weren't so heavily militarized, if our political echelon had been more wise and sought out peace arrangements with our neighbors that were real, Decades ago, this wouldn't be the case. But the fact of the matter is that it is all we have to look forward to politically and our dependency on the Americans for military aid and the role that we've played as an outpost for the Americans in the region. It's all undermining our ability to have a country that we can imagine existing over the long term as a democracy. Recently, we've seen an explosion of discontent among the uh, Arab citizens of Israel, which is, I believe, previously unknown phenomenon. What, what's happening there and what does this mean? Today, there was a, a general strike began in the occupied territories called by Fatah and other organizations that, that extended into Israel and, and affected the Arab community inside Israel as well. Palestinian Israelis at least in some Al Jazeera reports, are said to be striking in, in solidarity. The fact of the matter is that for the last week, there has been a near civil war raging inside mixed Arab-Israeli cities, and it is a consequence of the incitement against the Arab community by the Israeli far right and the fact that Israeli extremists, uh, organizations like Lechava, all of the Kahanis and neo Kahanis have been have been descending onto mixed Arab Israeli towns and inciting violence against them, and Israeli Palestinians have been fighting back. And this was something that nobody saw coming, but makes a lot of sense in the grand scheme of things, particularly the long history of Netanyahu's discriminatory rhetoric against the community. Remember, in the 2015 election, he managed to just barely win because at the last minute when the polls were looking bad for him, he said, the Arabs are coming out to vote in droves and put a left-wing government in power. I mean, my God, you know, if you didn't feel like rioting after that, you'd have to have your, you know, you'd have to have your, your head checked. Netanyahu has done everything he could to incite this kind of violence internally within Israel such that Palestinian and Jewish Israelis would end up fighting each other on the streets. It's remarkable, but it, it was due. Hamas is always presented as the villain in all these um, uh, events. It'd be nice to recover the history of Israel's relation to Hamas. Initially, Israel encouraged the creation of Hamas, right? Not unlike the U.S. and the Taliban. Israel has a habit of trying to cultivate Arab militias in the style of colonial militias to serve on its behalf. And, and remember, Hamas, though, existed long before they became instrumentalized by uh, the occupation. Israel has sought to find some kind of, has sought to reconcile itself with every Palestinian faction it thought could cooperate with it as long as they got paid off properly. With Hamas, 
there was a particularly sort of orientalist philosophy on the part of Israel that the religious people would be more easy to co-opt than the communists in Fatah. The same philosophy extends to the way that right-wing Israeli politicians reach out to evangelicals in the United States. Those people have more serious lobotomies than other Americans, therefore they'll be our friends. The religious outlook is such that the more religious someone is in their view, the more likely they are to support Israel. They also have an apocalyptic story that uh, fits in with the Israeli narrative as well. The Israeli right is, has a very sort of short-term calculus involved, and they don't think too much about that. Okay, a couple of other topics here. The um, Israeli destruction of that building housing, um, AP and Al Jazeera, uh, among other media institutions, as well as residences and some other offices, appalled a lot of people. Was there a strategy behind it? What was the intention? It certainly was not an accident. If you work in international news in Israel and the occupied territories, there doesn't seem to be much justification for having carried out that strike. But uh, if you want to defend Israel's actions, on Al Jazeera yesterday, there, there, was, uh, there was a panel discussion with someone from an Israeli legal organization who alleged that there was collusion between Hamas and the news organizations that were in the tower, in the Gaza media towers, um, specifically Al Jazeera and the Associated Press. And it was a bizarre charge to level. I watched the, the, rewatched the video several times. Uh, the Israeli government is fond of leveling some fairly fantastic allegations to sort of confuse discourse about what reality is in these kinds of circumstances. And this is no different. I mean, it's a, I can't believe anybody who is defending the activity on the Israeli side would actually believe that. But this is one of the conspiracy theories being offered to justify the strike. Personally, I mean, I think that 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 you know Netanyahu it was uh, it was a two pronged strike. One of which was sending a strong message to the international news media about its coverage of uh, conflicts like the one in Gaza. It was also a message to Israeli news media to tell the line. It was it's a very powerful symbolic act, and in some ways that that may be the more important political consequence of the destruction of the Gaza media building than the fact that it cut down on the amount of bad coverage of what was going on on the ground in Gaza. Did that actually happen? I've been watching um, international news feeds on Gaza all day, and I haven't seen anything that would lead me to believe it had that impact. It's not the way to win friends and influence people. Haaretz reported uh, late last night in an article I read about the attack that the Air Force targeted a, a total of uh, tw uh, 23 other international news and media organizations as well as local ones. I can't remember a time when the IDF was so proactive in attacking uh, media organizations like this during one of these campaigns. You're in Germany, you're in Berlin, and uh, I've seen some screenshots of headlines from German uh, media on Facebook, which were just appalling uh, in, in their bias, uh, in many ways worse than the U.S. press at its worst. Um, what, what's going on? What's happening with the, uh, the politics of um, Zionism and anti-Zionism in Germany? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Germany absorbed a large refugee population stemming from the 2015 refugee crisis here in Europe. A significant number of refugees of which were of Palestinian origin, Syrians of Palestinian background, for example. And whenever there are demonstrations against Israel in Germany, there is a significant turnout in cities with large Palestinian ethnic communities like Berlin protesting against Israeli policy. The Germans tend to see every criticism of Israel as being an expression of anti-Semitism. And the newspapers will say anti-Semitic rather than anti-Israel in their articles. This was especially the case with the media that covered this weekend's Nakba Day protests. Uh, the, I, I've never seen such poor coverage of Jewish affairs and of Arab affairs and of political affairs in Germany the entire time I've been here, including for some decent newspapers. It's like the moment there is something negative about Israel in the German press, everybody gets a lobotomy. I have worked with major newspapers here, and I'm shocked by some of the ones that I'm personally familiar with that they commission such poor work. But 
Anti-Semitism is the bete noir of the German political class. Defending Israel is part of its reason of state. And the Germans will just as gladly sound like evangelical Christians in their support for Israel every time Israel finds itself in a crisis of legitimacy. And they don't need to. I mean, the, the, the biggest problem in Germany today is Germany is a massively increasing multicultural society and with, with, a, with a fast-growing Muslim community. And the Germans treat them like they don't exist. And if there's any assertion of Muslim cultural identity in German politics, it's immediately categorized both on the far right and the far left uh, as being jihadist and anti-Jewish. And so the problem that a lot of Jewish Germans and Jews who live in Germany have with all this, especially the large number of Israelis that live in cities like Berlin, there's a big Israeli community here, is that the Germans aren't really talking about us and they aren't doing us any favors. In fact, when they respond this way, they promote anti-Semitism. They don't crush it. We become a battering ram as the Jewish community for the Germans to use to deal with their Muslim migrant population. And so we become far more precarious, not less. And, and so it's a, it's a real crisis. It's a real crisis for Jews. It's a real crisis for Muslims. It's a real crisis for German media. And I don't see any easy way out of this. There's not a lot of same voices prevailing at the level of the German political establishment. And there's a lot of Jewish pushback on this right now. And finally, um, you, you mentioned there's a very large Israeli expatriate community in uh, Berlin. That's true of many other places across Europe and even the United States. How much of uh, that exodus of, I would presume, uh, more humane and, and sensitive people, uh, how, how has that influenced uh, Israeli politics? Have the better people left and ceded ground to uh, the more bellicose forces? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Israel's experiencing a tremendous brain drain now, and it has for a number of years, both of educated people, and it's losing its political diversity partially as a consequence of that. But it's so hard to get by in Israel if you find yourself from the center to the radical left. It makes perfect sense that Israelis would leave, you know, and the figures, it's really hard to get precise figures about how many Israelis have actually left the country over the last 20 years. But judging from the size of the Israeli diasporas that I'm familiar with, you know, I've lived for a long time in Germany and I used to live in London where I also grew up and went to school. I've never met such high concentrations of Israeli leftists as I've met in Berlin and London, more than the United States even. That was Joel Shalit, founding editor of The Battleground, thebattleground.eu. He wrote about Israel's destruction of the Gaza media tower for that publication. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. I'm not like them, but I can't pretend The sun is gone, but I have a light The day is done, but I'm having fun I think I'm dumb, or maybe just happy Some of Dumb, a cover of the Nirvana song by Meta, just out from Kill Rock Stars. And now for a view from inside Israel. Orly Noy is a journalist, an editor at the Hebrew language website Local Call, and a frequent contributor to 972, an online magazine owned and produced by a group of Israeli and Palestinian journalists that covers the politics of the region. Noy is also a translator of Persian literature. She was born in Iran and her family moved to Israel on the same day the Shah left Iran in 1979, when she was nine years old. That makes her a Mizrahi, the name for Jews from the Middle East and North Africa who make up about a third of the country's population. They've always been second-class citizens in a country ruled mainly by Jews of European descent, known as Ashkenazim. 
Israelis of Arab descent, about 20% of the population, are more like third-class citizens. Here's Orly Noy with more. What is your understanding of why Israel exploded into this orgy of violence in Gaza? What is driving this? Is it domestic political considerations or what? With the political dead-ends that we've been locked in for such a long time, many Israelis understood that it was a matter of time for something. We never, no, I, I don't think that any of us really expected something on that scale. But it was uh, understood that Netanyahu needs some big escape or some big event to prevent his political rivals from uh, forming a government. And I think that, you know, he has good experience in um, starting fires. And he knows exactly how each side is going to play their roles. And and it happened much worse than we expected, but uh, it happened. I imagine there's very little opposition to uh, this war coming from within Israel. How much is there? Almost none. I mean, except, of course, for the Palestinian um, citizens of uh, Israel, which automatically are excluded. I mean, when, you know, the bombs are firing, then the collective us, us people, us crystallizes very quickly around Jewish ethnicity. And in that spectrum, there is almost a unanimous support of the war. You can hear some uh, reservations in parties such as in merits, uh, especially, but even then, they will make sure to confirm that uh, Israel has the right to defend itself and uh, Hamas should be defeated, etc., etc. A clear voice against a war and holding Israel uh, accountable for the war crimes that it is committing uh, in Gaza, you would hear that almost only among the Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel. Which are about what, 20% of the population? Something like that, yeah. That's a very large minority. How do you go about excluding 20% of your population from political life? It seems um, kind of hard to do. Oh, very easily. I mean, when the entire concept of uh, not not just your country, but your being, your collective being is based on Jewish supremacy, then it is very easy to. And we have, uh, you know, se- seven decades of experience in excluding uh, the Palestinian uh, minority, although, as you said, it's not such a small minority anymore. Until today, 70 years, more than 70 years after the establishment of Israel, it is considered an illegitimate thing to form a government that not even includes Palestinian members, but that relies on the quiet support of Palestinian Knesset members from outside the government. And the exclusion starts from top politics and uh, trickles down all the way to the most basic spheres of living. And this is especially, I think, amazing because Jews and Palestinians do meet on regular basis in Israel. You know, it's not that the Jews are unaware of the existence of Palestinians. They meet them as their doctors in the hospital, as their pharmacists, as uh, their mechanics, as they are aware of the fact that there are a lot of Palestinian citizens. But the notion that they can be an even player in the game is still not existing. We've seen in the past few weeks, I guess since the Human Rights Watch report, but we've also seen a couple of democratic politicians on the leftist side of the party beginning to use the word apartheid, which was previously forbidden except on the very far left. What, if any, effect has that had in Israel, this use now of a word which had previously been taboo? We are seeing um, uh, there are several phases to the Israeli collective response to that. The first phase is to say, well, they are anti-Semites, the entire world world hates us, Uh, we've always known that they are against us. Even more worrying phase is the second phase, indifference. I mean, so what? Let them call us whatever they want. We do whatever we want. And that's the way the world is. And I think that we are all 
already getting there. It's not outrage anymore. People are just indifferent to that. I mean, they called us things before, let them call us an apartheid state. Uh, for most Jewish Israelis, the word apartheid became something that furious leftists say when they are very, very angry. It doesn't come with an understanding of the entire uh, legal historic concept of the term. So, so they are mad and let, let them call us apartheid. So what? And what about any um, threat by the United States, which seems pretty abstract at this point, to um, withhold aid because of this uh, apartheid practice? Does Israel think it could live on its own without U.S. aid? That would definitely be a game changer. And uh, I think that the, the, the only real changes in Israeli policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians that we've seen uh, came after direct American intervention, especially in East Jerusalem and also the annexation of uh, the E1 territory uh, uh, just outside uh, Jerusalem. Uh, but as leaving office and the election of uh, Joe Biden uh, was a very worrying thing for the majority of Jewish Israelis. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, the average Jewish Israeli is really worried because nobody truly believes that America will, will stop its massive uh, military and political support to Israel. I don't think that the Israelis consider this as a real option. They will say, okay, so we will have not as warm, not as friendly relations as with the Trump administration, but it's America. Hey, we are, you know, it's a family. They will always have our back. I don't think that uh, in Israel people understand the severity of that, that threat because it, they just don't think it really exists. <laughs> From an American point of view, it's hard to imagine it coming to pass too, but um, I guess nothing is impossible. We've been speaking of Jews, or you've been speaking of Jews, um, Israeli Jews, as a, as a kind of a unified force. But there are divisions within uh, the Jewish population within Israel. For example, you, know, you, you come from Iran originally. Are you perceived as second-class Jews compared to those of European origin? I don't think that it's really a matter of conception. I think that uh, it's a matter of uh, facts. Uh, every now and then, the discourse around the status of Mizrahi Jews, Jews who came from Arab and Muslim countries, would appear on the public scene in Israel, and then they will tell you, oh, it was something that uh, that belongs to the 1950s, uh, we are past that, we have inter-ethnical marriages uh, between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews, and it, it, it doesn't exist any, anymore. But it actually very much does still exist, and researchers show time after time that the more Mizrahi uh, you are, uh, the more you are likely to earn less money, to get better jobs, to even be uh, summoned to job interviews than a lesser qualified Ashkenazi to attend universities, relation to another. So it's not just a matter of conception. Um, Mizrahi Jews are lower in almost every aspect in Israel. What effect does that have on the politics of the country? Does that is that reflected in you know the Knesset or 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 in the the government in, in, in any significant way, or is it just all pretty much dominated by the Ashkenazi? If you look, you know, you have uh, different sorts of elites in in the society. So if you look at the political elite, uh, i.e., the Knesset members and government members, you will uh, see quite a few Mizrahim, although we've never had a Mizrahi prime minister, we've had a woman prime minister, we've never had a Mizrahi prime minister, and I think that there is a reason for that. But in different, and, and in the army, and, and there is a very good reason why in army of all places, you will find Mizrahis at the toppest of ranks. But other elites, such as the legal system, judges, uh, have the more symbolic powers, you will see less and less, uh, fewer Mizrahim in, in those uh, circles. And I think that there is a good reason for that as well. I'm speaking with the journalist and translator Orly Noy. You said there's a good reason for the exception in the army. What is that reason? 
Well, ever since the Mizrahi communities were brought to Israel in the 1950s, the Ashkenazi establishment did that very reluctantly. They didn't really want the Mizrahim, especially because, and, and they said it quite explicitly, and you can find that in documented, they were very suspicious about the Mizrahim because the Mizrahim looked like Arabs, they spoke Arabic, they come from the Middle East. So Mizrahim understood that they need to gain the trust of the Ashkenazi establishment by... Uh, detaching themselves as much as they can from their Arab identity and to constantly prove to the Ashkenazi establishment that although we look the same and we have the same heritage and history and language and appearance and so on, we are not that kind of Arabs. And how do you prove that best, if not by joining the army? proving what a good Zionist patriot you are and fighting uh, the bad Arabs, which are mostly the Palestinians. Is there any kind of political solidarity between Mizrahim and, uh, and Palestinians? It is very, very rare. I mean, generally, solidarity between Jews and Palestinians is quite rare, but it's even less so with the Mizrahi Jews for several reasons. First, um, as I mentioned, the Mizrahi didn't have a good first encounter with the Ashkenazi establishment that, and we are talking about the establishment that is sort of the forefathers of the what, what you would refer to today as the uh, Zionist left. So that historic resentment towards, uh, the Mizrahi resentment towards that Ashkenazi sort of so- socialist leftist establishment turned many Mizrahim as a community towards uh, the right. But there are other reasons why Mizrahim in general are, are largely found on the right side of the Israeli political map. When you belong to a marginalized community, what you seek for is connecting to the power. And and this is exactly what right-wing offers the Mizrahim. I mean, you will still continue to be at the bottom of the scale, but we will give you the sense of supremacy, that the, the sense that you are superior over somebody else, over the Palestinians. And I think that for many Mizrahim, that was an appealing deal. There are also economic reasons for that, because if the Ashkenazi establishment during the 50s excluded the Mizrahim from the loot of uh, the 1948 war, the right-wing political establishment very wisely integrated the Mizrahi economic interests into the operation of, of the occupation. It means that Mizrahim all of a sudden could buy beautiful cottages, houses uh, in the settlements, uh, houses they could never afford inside the borders of 1948. And all of a sudden you have this whole new Mizrahi middle class that was created in the settlements in the occupied territories. So they had an interest all of a sudden in the continuation of the occupation. So there there are many reasons why that solidarity between Mizrahim and Palestinians, which in my view is the only hope for us out of uh, that catastrophe that we have been living for such a long time, is just not happening. And from what you describe, it seems like there's not much hope of it happening anytime soon. Well, you know, I would uh, very much like to offer some sort of optimistic point of view or hope, but I, I actually agree with you. I don't think that we are likely to see such changes in the near future. But having said that, you know, we are talking now in a very dramatic and traumatic and catastroph- catastrophic moment in Israel-Palestine. And as devastating as it is, sometimes these total catastrophes also present a moment of possible change. And I hope, I mean, because, you know, the the Israeli periphery 
that is being constantly under attacks by Hamas missiles is mostly Mizrahi. So I do have a hope that uh, although we've been through such violent circles time and time again, and it just shifted everybody more and more to the right wing, but I have, you know, some childish hope that uh, the Mizrahim will look up and say, hey, we actually have a lot more in common in terms of interests with the Palestinians in Gaza right now that are their lives are also being destroyed to the ground than the Ashkenazi Netanyahu that only has politically something to gain from our misery and our death uh, and suffering. But uh, it, as I said, it's a very remote uh, hope. I mean, now, you are on the board of Betzalem, a human rights organization that does really important uh, work. How many like you are there in Israel? And how, are, how is an organization like Betzalem uh, perceived by the, the broad population? There aren't many of us, unfortunately. Um, B'Tselem, like many other human rights uh, organizations, has been going under a long and constant, what is the word that I'm looking for? Incitement. I mean, there is an ongoing, a very long and ongoing and constant incitement against B'Tselem as well as other human rights organizations. A few years back, we've had an almost institutionalized uh, persecution. I mean, it was really very frightening. Uh, By extreme right-wing organizations, that was very obvious that they were fully adopted and backed by the political leadership that went after not just after B'Tselem or Breaking the Silence or other organizations as organizations, but they went after individuals. They posted the photos of the executive directors of these organizations. They We in B'Tselem hired uh, bodyguards for Haggai Al-Ad uh, for some time because of the death threats that uh, he was uh, receiving. I know that other organizations uh, uh, went through the same thing. So it's not uh, it's not a happy place to be in Israel. To to insist in voicing that uh, voice that demands justice, demands the respect of human rights, demands equality, and we are in my uh, feeling, at least, we are becoming less and less throughout the years. Finally, it just doesn't sound like there's much of a constituency to end this permanent war and repression. Am I wrong? Is there anything that we can seize on as a, as a shred of hope? Yes. Um, I think that that question takes us best back to the role of the Palestinian citizens in Israel. The one thing that was clear in the last four rounds of election is that without the cooperation of the Palestinian political leadership, no change can happen. Even Netanyahu understood that he needs at least some parts of the Palestinian political leadership to cooperate with him. And even Netanyahu understood that he can bring the Kahanists into the Knesset, but he cannot form a government with them without at least some Palestinian um, Knesset members. This is a very crucial and very important understanding that might give us some way out of this mess, if more, if it will be more acceptable, more understood in the Israeli broader uh, discourse that not only that the Palestinian citizens are integral and legitimate part of the Israeli society and politics, but that no change can happen uh, without them, then it almost might be worth the endless round of uh, political chaos that we've been experiencing because it is a very important understanding. Um, I'm an all the the head of the joint list put it uh, the most accurately. He said, we, the Palestinian citizens, cannot 
uh, bring the change by ourselves, but the change will not happen, cannot happen without us. If at least, you know, that's one sentence will, will be truly understood by the Israeli public, then there is hope. Now, we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks um, a, a level of mobilization and protest from the Palestinian population within Israel, uh, participation in demonstrations, a general strike. What are the effects of this? Has this uh, shaken up uh, Israeli political life, uh, having this, uh, this, this new assertiveness coming from a significant minority of the population? I don't think that uh, the Israeli political and public spheres really understand the nature of the dramatic moment uh, that you just uh, described. And unfortunately, the Israeli media has a huge role in that by uh, portraying the this unified Palestinian uprise uh, in, in, on both sides of the Green Line as yet another moment of riots and another round of riots, uh, violence. And this is the only context that they can understand it. The same with the Israeli political leadership, but there is something very significant going on. This is a defining moment that Palestinians that uh, have been suffering from the politics of divide and rule uh, implemented by Israel for so many years are uh, trying to unite and a voice, a united voice. And, you know, as usual, things that Israel refuses to understand by logic, it will eventually have to understand by force. I was Orly Noy, an editor at the Hebrew language website Local Call, a frequent contributor to 972 magazine, and a translator of Persian literature. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. As I said last week, 18th century harpsichord music has helped me get through this pandemic. Let's go out with some more of that. This, the Tamaran from Rameau's Sweet and D Minor Major, performed by Christophe Rousset. Till next week, bye. <laughs> ¶¶